And in keeping with that uh, spirit of explanation of what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing, this is the sermon. <laughs> this is the message. This is supposed to be the high point of worship where the scriptures are opened and quoted, read, and then the word of the Lord for you as it filters down through those scriptures. Hopefully uh, the Lord will touch your heart and call you to action. But this is the message. The first sermon series that uh, Blackman Baptist Church had was uh, through the book of Mark. We preached verse by verse through the book of Mark. It took 43 messages to get through the book. That's about an average of three messages per chapter. There's 16 chapters in the book of Mark. At that point in time, I was thinking, wow, will we ever get to preach through John? And uh, the Lord allowed us to preach through the book of John. It took about a year and a half. I don't know how many messages that was, but it was probably 70 to 80 messages. And that was such a blessing. We've been blessed to be able to work through Genesis and the Psalms and James and Titus. And uh, so we have a little mini message series here uh, right in the book of Acts. We are preaching through the book of Acts. The, the series is on the book of Acts. And now we have a little mini series inside Acts on baptism. So last week, uh, I began a mini-series on baptism, and then, Lord willing, this week I will conclude this. And uh, by way of uh, helpful explanation, I want to point out to you that the church does have a website. It's a good website, and we have a podcast. And so I believe that uh, last week's message is already up on the podcast, and if you weren't able to be with us last week, uh, if you will listen to that podcast, some of the things that I'm saying today might make a little bit more sense. Maybe they won't. Hopefully they will. But, uh, and then hopefully we'll have this message up on the podcast quickly as well. You will remember, those of you who were here, that last week as we began this mini-series on baptism, that uh, I told you that I was once a part of the 4-H club, and, uh, but uh, for sake of participation in the service and the message last week, I wanted you to join the 3H club. And uh, by three H's, I meant humility. When we talk about baptism, I want you to know that I come to this topic with great humility. I, I don't have it all figured out. We don't understand everything. As a matter of fact, in this message, uh, I will be quoting uh, from the great Presbyterian preacher R.C. Sproul. Uh, Sam shared with me last Sunday night some uh, of a message that he heard him preach uh, specifically on infant baptism. Just this week, I read some Kevin DeYoung, who is a great Presbyterian preacher. Uh, I read uh, an article on infant baptism where he was defending uh, that practice and did a brilliant, beautiful, beautiful explanation 
of why they participate in infant baptism. I remain unconvinced, but it was still brilliant and beautiful. And, uh, but I say all that to say this, I, I do come to this particular topic with, with humility, hopefully with some boldness and confidence too, but humility, the first H, humility, the second H is health. It's important to our church to know what we believe and why we believe it. You need to know what the stance of this church is and why we believe the things that we do, why we practice the things that we do. And that's why I love what happened here this morning and, and with Ken explaining the various elements of uh, the liturgy and Weston explaining now why we do this and why we do that. Uh, it's important to the health of our church that we know why we're doing what we're doing. We're just not going through things because that's the way it's always been. We're not just going through things because we haven't thought about it. We haven't prayed about it. We haven't labored over it. How does the Lord want us to do these things? So it's important to the health of the church that we know what we believe and why we believe, especially as it pertains to baptism. After all, we are Baptists. The third H is history. And I spent an awful lot of time last week, maybe, maybe too much time, on the history of the church, the last 2,000 years, baptism has been a, uh, a contentious um, point at times, a contentious to the point of death at times. Um, and why do we believe, I mean, what has happened? How, why does the church now seem so fragmented and fractured on this particular subject of baptism? Uh, why do Presbyterians uh, practice infant baptism? Why do Baptists believe in immersion? And why do Church of Christ believe that baptism is necessary for salvation? And so to understand how we got here, we wanted to spend a little bit of time on the history of the church. I think, you, think we need to know the history of the church uh, as it pertains to these matters. Um, and so I, I came across this in my reading last night, and I wanted to share it with you. This is from God of Liberty, a religious history of the American Revolution. And this is a direct quote. And he's talking about the practice of churches leading up to the Revolutionary War. And he says this, although almost all Reformed or Protestant churches, including Puritan churches, baptized infants, a practice that continued in most of the churches of the Great Awakening, some of the separates, now these would be Baptist. Some of the separates became convinced that the way, the only way to maintain a truly pure church was to baptize only converted adult believers. This theological precept flowed directly from the revivalist focus on the new birth. For Baptists, baptizing unconverted babies made no sense. They believed people should experience the new birth of conversion and then receive baptism by immersion in water, which symbolized their spiritual transformation from sin and death to new life in Christ. The new Baptist churches faced intense persecution from colonial governments, not only in New England, but also in the South, especially in Virginia. And I don't quote that to you today as um, a reason why we don't believe in infant baptism. I just want, to, want you to know that it's an important part of our history and it's an important part of American history. And so we need to have humility when we approach this subject. It's important to the health of our church and we need to know the history. How did the church get to this point? 
little understanding is in order. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, your word. And we thank you for baptism, an important sign. I pray, Lord, that um, today's message will answer more questions than it raises. And that today's message will point to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ, and what he did for us on the cross, how he paid the price for our sins. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So I promised last week that uh, if you would bear with me through the three H's, that uh, if the Lord allowed this Sunday, we would take a whirlwind tour through the book of Acts, and we would talk about every single passage where baptism is even mentioned. And we would also talk about a few passages of Scripture in Acts where baptism is not mentioned. And we wanted to talk about maybe why it wasn't mentioned in those passages and its significance. But before we can get to Acts, we need to go back to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. And this will be the only passage of Scripture that I'll read to you today outside of the book of Acts. But Jesus in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. R.C. Sproul, the great Presbyterian theologian and pastor who just passed uh, to be with the Lord in December of last year, he was at some point in time in his ministry, he was asked, what is the significance of baptism? And this is his answer. Just as an aside, the word significance has its root, the word sign. A sign is something that points to something beyond itself. We all recognize that whatever baptism signifies, Jesus obviously thought it was very important because he gave a command to baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whatever else it is, baptism is the sign of the new covenant that God made with his people. We do have the clear mandate in the New Testament that Christians are to be baptized. And that's the end of that quote. First time that baptism is mentioned in Acts is in Acts chapter 1. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and we will now proceed to move through the book of Acts, and we will get done on time, JJ. Just uh, Lord willing. That's the Lord will. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. In this passage, Jesus promises the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. He presented himself, this is Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering. By many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So after Jesus gave the command to the disciples to go into all nations, discipling them, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he also told them, he said, stay in Jerusalem because there is something that's coming 
after that. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to point out here, based on Jesus' words here, that there is a baptism that's even greater than water baptism. And we see it here. And we also know that the disciples obeyed. They stayed in Jerusalem. Can you imagine if you were one of the disciples who took a day trip out of Jerusalem uh, on Pentecost and you missed it? Man. No, the word says that the disciples obeyed. They stayed in Jerusalem. And of course the Holy Spirit, uh, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. The second passage, and this is an important passage too, Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Turn just a page or two over to Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. This is pre Peter preaching the good news at Pentecost. And I'm going to begin in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And, and, then, and Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that, added that day about 3,000 souls. Now this particular passage here contains Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which is the go-to verse for the Church of Christ uh, people. If you talk to them, they will take you to this verse and they will say, you see, it's right there. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Your sins are not going to be, they, they will argue that your sins will not be forgiven until you've been baptized. That baptism is absolutely necessary for you to be saved. This is their go-to passage. And they connect baptism here with the forgiveness of sins. And by connecting it to the forgiveness of sins, basically what they're saying is that baptism is necessary for salvation. And we don't believe that. We believe that baptism is what you do to indicate to the world that your sins have been forgiven. We believe here that Peter is telling his, his fellow Jews what they need to do. He's not laying out the theological order for salvation. What happens first, then this happens. Now, we don't believe he's doing that. We just believe he's being practical. They said, what do, you, what do we need to do? And he said, well, you need to believe. And then you need to be baptized. He tells them what to do and what will happen once they are saved. And so let me ask you this. What actually does bring the forgiveness of sins? Is it baptism? Is it repentance? Because it says repent and be baptized. Is it, is it repentance that brings the forgiveness of sins? Or is it the baptism that brings the, repent, the forgiveness of sins? Or is it putting them both together? Repentance and baptism that brings the forgiveness of sins. No, my brothers. No, my sisters. God forgives your sins. It doesn't have anything to do with what you do physically when you go under the waters of baptism. It's God that gives us the forgiveness of sins. God recognizes your heart. When you surrender your heart to him and say, I trust you, Jesus, I'm putting myself on you. 
100% on you. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. When you do that, God forgives your sins. God saves you. Then it's your job to show the world. And that is to go under the waters of baptism. Here's a little bit more from R.C. Sproul. And I know he'll forgive me. Uh, a Baptist quoting a Presbyterian. Um, this is what he says. I personally do not believe that baptism is essential for salvation. I believe that, if I believed that, I would think that the thief on the cross was disqualified because he was promised paradise with Jesus, but he obviously didn't have the opportunity to be baptized. But I do believe that baptism is essential for obedience because Christ commands it. It's just the same as when people say, do you have to go to church to go to heaven? I would say, obviously not. But do you have to go to church to obey, to obey Christ? Yes, you do. Same way. If you're not inclined to obey Christ and have no inclination to follow his mandates, that may be a sign, there's that word again, that may be a sign that you are not headed for heaven. So church involvement becomes a very serious matter of obedience, end quote. What he's saying here is that baptism is a serious matter of obedience but it's not necessary or essential for salvation. Baptism does not save you. It's a sign that you've been saved. It's a sign to the world that you recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's your sign to the world that you have come to the realization that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's out of our hands. It's in His. It's your testimony that you've tried, but you're tired. Tired of your sin. You're scared of what your sin has turned you into. And now you are repenting and turning to God. And baptism is the outward sign to the world that you have placed your faith totally in Jesus Christ. The next time baptism is mentioned is Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 verses 12 through 14. And in this passage, I want you to listen for what's missing. Acts 5.12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So believers are being added to the Lord in the church of Jerusalem. But did you notice that baptism wasn't mentioned there? Interesting. Acts chapter 5, a little bit lower, lower in the chapter, a little bit later in the chapter. Acts chapter 5, verse 29 through 31. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It's Jesus who's doing the forgiveness of sins. Did you notice baptism is not mentioned there? Did you notice that there's nothing in there about people being baptized for the forgiveness of sins? I really prefer the translation from the New Living Translation, Acts chapter 5, 31. He did this so the people of Israel would repent of their sins and be forgiven. Once again, no mention of baptism here in relationship, in conjunction with forgiveness of sins. Then this is a very interesting story. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verses 12 through 17. But there was a man named Simon. Now this is not Simon Peter. 
this is Simon the Magician, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, verse 10. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when, verse 14, now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that, the Samaria, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed to them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, so interesting. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Belief comes first, then baptism. Verse 13, Simon believes, and then he's baptized. We are all to believe. We are commanded to believe. At some point in time, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone at some point in time will believe this. But to us, here and now it's been given to us. We are commanded to believe, to trust Christ, and then we're commanded to be baptized in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. Famous passage in regards to baptism here. Acts chapter 8 verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Verse 39. So here we're going to make the case for going down into the water, immersion, and coming back up out of the water. When we were at the Museum of the Bible in December, uh, one of the floors has a special... Uh, place where they are trying to recreate what Nazareth would have been like in Jesus' time. It was so fascinating, so interesting. And so we saw the olive press, and we saw uh, various uh, tools of the trade that a carpenter would have. It was just, uh, just an amazing time there. Rhonda and I enjoyed that so much. Then we went into the synagogue where uh, Jesus... Um, would have spoken and where he did, did speak uh, is a replica of the synagogue life size. We walk in there and just next door to the synagogue there was a big cistern and I said what is that? Oh that's the mikvah. What's the mikvah? Well before someone could read the word of God they would go into the mikvah and they would go under the water and they would come out then they would be in a place of physically being able to to handle the word of God and to preach. And that, that was an immersion type situation there as well. 
This particular passage here, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, makes the case for immersion as the mode of baptism. It also is one of many uh, passages of scripture that we've already read and we will read in Acts that makes the case that baptism normally is going to follow sal the salvation experiences pretty much as close as possible. Now, that won't always be the case. In my own case, um, I was saved when I was five, but I was not baptized until I was seven. I think of my daughter-in-law, Karina, who was born and raised in Romania. She was born and raised in Romania during the time of the great communist persecution of believers. And believers in Romania did not practice immediate baptism afterwards because, well, they were worried about spies uh, coming into the church who were there to take names, turn their names over to authorities. And they also wanted to make sure that if you were truly a believer of Jesus Christ, that you counted the cost because it could cost your life. So immediate baptism right after salvation is not always practiced, but it seems to be the general preferred way for us to do it. And speaking of a potential spy in the body of Christ, let's turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 17 through 18. Let's talk about how Saul came to know Christ and how he was actually suspected of being a spy who was coming into the midst of the believers to take names. And this is after Saul has seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Ananias, the prophet, has been given the word by the Lord, hey, you need to go see Saul. And Ananias says to the Lord, uh, Saul? Saul of Tarsus? Are you sure? Uh, you may not know this Lord, but he's really been wrecking havoc on the church. And the Lord says, yeah, I, I know who he is, Ananias. Go see him. Acts chapter 9, verse 17 through 18, Ananias, a faithful believer, obeys. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. I love the word brother there. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you might, may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. The next time baptism is mentioned in Acts is Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 10, verse 44. And if you were in Sunday school today, you know that we, we talked about Cornelius. And if you were in Sunday school uh, three or four weeks ago, we had an entire Sunday on Cornelius. And so Peter goes to some Gentiles. And in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak, hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And then a little bit later in Acts chapter 11, Peter's going to report about what happened when he was with Cornelius and the Gentile believers. 
And in verse 15, Acts chapter 11, verse 15, Peter's recounting to the church at Jerusalem. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts chapter 13 is the next passage that mentions baptism. Paul is preaching the gospel on mission trips and somebody important uh, in the eyes of the world trusts Christ. Verse 12, Acts chapter 13, verse 12. Then the proconsul or the governor, believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this important person believes in the gospel. By the way, there's no mention of baptism there. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So the Gentiles are believing. Once again, there's no mention of baptism here. Acts chapter 16. And Acts 16 is a great uh, chapter of study in regards to baptism. Uh, two great instances in Acts chapter 16. Lydia believes. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate. This is Paul and Luke. Um, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Notice that Lydia believed, and then her whole household believed as well, and then they were all baptized. A little bit later in the same chapter, Acts chapter 16, verse 29, Paul's in prison with Silas for preaching the gospel. He's been beat, he's in stocks, he's in bonds, and God sends an earthquake. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food for them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The whole household was taught the word of God here. And they believed. Then they were baptized. Acts chapter 18, verses 7 through 8. And he left there, this is Paul, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse, uh, chapter 18, verses 24 through 36. Let's talk about Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard them, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And then Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, was the passage that we read last week. And this is the passage where Paul is working his way back through the inland of Asia Minor. And he comes to Ephesus and he finds a group of believers who have only experienced the baptism of John. And he asked them, into whose name were you baptized? And they, they said, John. And he said, then you haven't received the Holy Spirit? And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. I just love that passage. Because it just shows that so many times as Christians, we don't even know what's going on around us. But God is faithful to send, God was faithful to send Paul to the church at Ephesus to help those believers understand. Then Acts chapter 22, verses 12 through 16, Paul recounts his testimony. And basically, he just tells exactly what happens when Ananias came to him and presented uh, the gospel and how he believed and then how he was baptized. I want you to notice something. We have just gone through every single reference to baptism in the book of Acts. I told you it was going to be a whirlwind tour. It was. Baptism is not even mentioned in Acts 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, or 28. You may have, not, you may have noticed that baptism wasn't mentioned in Acts chapter 20 or 21 as well. Or in Acts chapter 17, 15, 14, 13, 12, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. But do you know what is mentioned all through Acts? The gospel. You know why the gospel is mentioned all through Acts and baptism isn't? It goes back to what we studied in Sunday school this morning. There are some doctrines and issues that are primary importance. The Trinity. The atonement. The deity of Christ, justification by faith and faith alone. Those are on the top tier. They are primary doctrines that we hold to. And we say you have to believe these to be Christian. But there are secondary doctrines and teachings and practices that we as Christians don't always agree on. We don't always agree on the significance of the Lord's Supper. What that means. What happens during the Lord's Supper. We don't always agree on baptism. Some of us practice infant baptism. Some of us don't. But the reason why the gospel is all through Acts and baptism isn't is because baptism is secondary. Baptism is a sign that points to the gospel. When we're baptized, when we go under the waters of baptism, we are pointing to the cross. We are aligning ourselves with what happened to Jesus when he died on the cross. And when we come back up out of the water, it's a perfect sign. It's the resurrection. We are identifying with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. We are buried. The old life is buried. The old life has died. We are resurrected to a new life. Baptism is a sign that points to the gospel. Many times when you go to, um, we have relatives who were in town with us this week, and some of them were going to Pitch and Forge and to the Great Smoky Mountains. And have you ever seen, have you ever gone to one of those national parks and, and you're, you're almost there, the excitement's building, and then you see the sign, 
Great Smoky Mountain National Park. Oh, stop, Dad. Pull over. We gotta, we gotta get a picture in front of the sign. And so you, you pull over and you, you get ready to take the sign. Hopefully there's somebody there who can take a picture of all of you or you have a really long selfie stick so you can take a picture. And so you take a picture of you and your family in front of the sign. Now, let me ask you, did you really want to see the sign or did you really want to see the Great Smoky National Park? Have you ever get a chance to go to the pyramid, pyramids? There's going to be a sign, it's probably in a triangle shape, that says pyramids. And maybe you want to get a picture with the sign pointing to the pyramids, but did you really come to see the sign? No, you came to see what the sign was pointing to, because it's what the sign is pointing to that has the real significance. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the sign. It's what the sign points to. I was talking to a believer just this week, and we were talking about another secondary matter that sometimes divides churches. And he asked me about my position on that. And I told him, as with great humility, I told him what I believe. And I told him, I said, I don't think I have it all figured out, but this is what I believe. But I will tell you this, my brother, I don't think that's a matter of primary importance. And so you won't hear me stressing that and saying, this is the way, this is the word of the Lord. We have clear understanding and teaching on that. I think we do have clear understanding and teaching on the primary doctrines of the faith. But when it comes to the secondary matters, we're not going to split the church over that because we don't have full understanding and they're not that important. It's just like that sign. That sign is not why you go to see the pyramids. That sign is not why you go to see the mountains in East Tennessee. The sign points to what's truly important. And what's truly important is the gospel of Jesus Christ for all people. Sometimes the world criticizes us because we say, we agree with what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the world says, that's so narrow. Why do you believe that? What's wrong with all these other ways to God? Why does it have to be just that way? And we're criticized because we believe that there is one way to God. But I'll tell you this. That's true. There is one way to God, but the road is wide open for anybody who believes. Anybody can be saved. We saw it today. Jews can be saved. Gentiles can be saved. Samaritans can be saved. The, it's wide open. All people can be saved who trust in Jesus, put their faith in Him, and believe.